You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What describes your take? Are you following cheap grace or are you following costly grace? Has American Christianity become too comfortable? The cross compels us to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow Him. What does it cost you to follow Christ? In today's message, Pastor Dave discusses cheap grace versus costly grace. Cheap grace is forgiveness with no repentance or grace without discipleship. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 21 as he continues his message, Where Were the Christians? Paul had a passion for Christ and he desperately, so desperately wanted his countrymen, the Jews, to come to salvation by faith in Jesus. And he was willing to do anything to accomplish that fact. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Paul knew the cost of discipleship and chose to take a stand for Christ. Remember, back in Acts 21, he told his friends that he was willing to go to Jerusalem and die if necessary so that some might be saved. As a review, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he found the church of Jerusalem in a very, very weakened state. Those Jews who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ became Christians. They were all now zealous for the law. A new breed was born, a strange mixture of Christianity and Judaism. They thought that continually obeying the law and by continually keeping it to themselves, they would continually be saved. Keeping themselves close to God would be somehow beneficial to them through rituals and traditions when what they were really doing was trampling upon the grace of God. They were trampling upon God's very grace that he had given to them. And they decided that they would force others, namely the Gentiles, to adhere to this law system that they nor their fathers could bear. Their fathers couldn't do this before them. It was shown to them. They couldn't bear this yoke, but they insisted upon forcing this on to all who would believe. The crazy thing about this law system, as we studied back in Exodus 20, it was never intended for the Gentiles. The law was never intended for the Gentiles in the first place. But Paul waged a steady campaign against this group of false teachers. He called them Judaizers. They had sown great confusion among the apostles' recent converts. They went to them and constantly came against them, and they were teaching them that they had to become Jewish to be saved. They had to fulfill the law of Moses. They had to be circumcised to be served. We saw that the church of Jerusalem was weakened by gossip and rumors. Slanderous accusations against Paul had circulated throughout the church and how Paul taught the law of Moses. James even said to him, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the laws, 
all the, excuse me, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. You can read that in verse 21 of Acts 21. The church was also weakened because of compromise. The elders asked Paul to compromise his convictions and take four men, take them into the temple and help them fulfill a vow, sponsor them, pay their way. And by doing this, you're going to appease the Jews. The church was men-pleasers. They, they were man-pleasers. They didn't care for Christianity. They wanted to please men because they were afraid there would be an uproar. Well, a lot of good that did. But Paul agreed to this. Many, many people believed that this was a sin for Paul. When Paul agreed to this compromise, many people believed that Paul was going against his own convictions and his own writings in Galatians and Romans. But Paul agrees to this because he wants to see the Jews saved. He wants to see the Jews come into salvation. So he thinks if he can be all things to all people, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. And he could do that. Why? Because he was a Jew. He could do that. The church was, was weakened by compromise. The church was weakened by prejudice. When they saw Paul in the temple, these men assumed that because Paul was there, the Gentiles, what were with them, were there. And they went crazy. Their prejudicial attitude just reared up and raged, and they, and they attacked Paul and drug him out and started pounding on him. This is crazy. Paul had done exactly what the elders in James had asked him to do. He showed them his flexibility. He showed him his ability to compromise and try to maintain peace. Remember, Paul also brought an offering from the Gentile churches. Remember we studied that? Paul brought an offering to the Gentile churches. That's not even mentioned that they received it. It's not even mentioned what happened to it. Nothing is mentioned at all. Luke leaves that out completely. So what was the result of all this weakening, this legalism, this, these gossip and rumors, this, this compromise, and, and this prejudice? What was the result? A riot. They caused a riot within the church. What is the result of this? The Jews from Asia got the upper hand, and they started to stir up the crowd. They started to get these people all crazy, and the crowd with crowd mentality, they go wild. And we looked at verse 27, it says, Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And beginning in verse 30, it says, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. They threw him out of the temple. Get out of this temple. Paul is dragged out into that upper court, I mean, that, that court of the Gentiles. He's dragged out there, and he's beaten. They start to pound on the guy. Look at verses 31 and 32. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all the Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw that the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The only way they stopped beating Paul was when the soldiers set up. Now, I love the Bible. You can learn many, many different things about the Bible, including historical facts. Now, I can tell you here that there were over 200 people coming, 200 soldiers coming to Paul's rescue. How can I tell you that? Because the word centurions goes, each centurion commanded 100 people. So if there was more than one centurion, if there were centurions, then there must have been at least 200 people coming with the commander. They needed that many people to rescue Paul. So many soldiers. So I have to ask the question. Where were the Christians? 
Where were the Christians during all this? Where were the Christians? Where, where was James and the elders? What were they doing doing all this? All these people in Jerusalem, not one person stands up for Paul. Not one person stands up for righteousness and says, what you're doing for Paul is wrong. Not one person. Where were they? If they had said something, if James and the elders had said something, I believe that Luke would have recorded it. I truly believe that Luke would have recorded it and said something about that. It's completely silent. They don't stand up. Where are the Christians? They stood by this mob, pulled Paul out, and they would have killed him. Very much like the churches stood by in the 30s and watched Nazi Germany do what they did, never coming forward, never proclaiming the gospel, never proclaiming righteousness, never standing up for what is right. I, I guess they were afraid. I guess maybe we'll stand by silently too as things in our nation continue to progress. I certainly hope not. It's inconceivable to me that this happened without a word from anyone. Listen to what John Corson said. He's, one of, he's, he's another one of my favorite commentators. John Corson says this. Here's the question. Where were the Jerusalem believers? Paul had come bringing an offering for them. He had shown his flexibility in doing what they asked him, even if it was against his convictions, and now he was getting beat of his result. Where was the church when Paul was in trouble? Nowhere to be found. That's quite of an indictment. That's quite of an indictment right there. He continues, this is what happens when legalism, compromise, and prejudice begin to set into a church or even an individual. Energy and commitment are replaced by traditionalism and rituals. A better-than-you attitude exists. We're better than you, so we're going to enforce our law upon you. If you don't obey our law, well, we'll just uh, kill you. That's the attitude that they have. That was the attitude that Hitler had. We're just going to destroy everybody to make my race. It's a tragic commentary that in Jerusalem, it was the Romans, Gentiles, who stood up for Jew, Paul, not the Christian church. As we continue, look at verse 33. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he'd done. I wonder... As Paul was putting his hands out, and as they were binding his hands, what do you think might have gone through his mind? What do you think might have gone through Paul's mind as they were doing that? Remember back when we studied Acts 21.11, when the prophet Abigus came to the group right before Paul entered Jerusalem? The prophet Abigus comes, and he says this in Acts 21.11, when he, the prophet, had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Was Paul going, Whoa, wait a minute. What was the conclusion? What was the consensus of that group? The consensus of that group when Paul says, I'm willing to go to die to Jerusalem. I don't care. What was their consensus? The Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. That was the consensus was. So I guess the Lord's will is being done here. In verse 34a, it says, And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. They didn't even know what they were doing. They were all running around beating, beating, beating this man up. What, why are you doing this? I don't know, because he's doing it. Oh, they're, they're running around. This mob mentality takes place again. They couldn't even agree on why they were doing this. Some said this. Others said that. Most probably didn't even know what the heck they were doing. In verses 34 36, so when he could have ascertained, not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, 
He commanded him to be taken to the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Away with him! After Paul's conversion, Jesus showed him what he was going to suffer, how he was going to suffer for Jesus' namesake. It says that in Scripture. Here we see Paul suffering just like Jesus did. The crowd yelling the exact same thing they yelled to Jesus, away with him, away with him, which finally led to crucify him. Remember years earlier, a few years earlier, Jesus was there. You know Jesus, another radical with crazy ideas. He said really bizarre things that made people crazy like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know those radical statements that Jesus made that everybody wanted to kill him for? This is what happened to Paul. As we continue, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, no, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. They take Paul to the barracks, and he asks permission to speak. The commander thinks he's an Egyptian, an Egyptian rebel who came against the Romans some time ago. And, and this, is, this is documented in Josephus. It's documented in Josephus that there was this Egyptian rebel who led a band of some 4,000 people or so against the Romans, and they were quelled. The rebellion was quelled. Paul says no, and he introduces himself. Paul wants to speak to the crowd. Why? Paul wants to speak to these guys. These guys just finished beating him up. He's probably all bloody and bruised. He's probably shaken, but he wants to speak to the crowd. Why does Paul want to speak to the crowd? They just beat you up, Paul. They want to kill you. What do you want to talk to them for? Why? Because he has this overwhelming passion for people to know Christ. He has this overwhelming passion that they might know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and come into the kingdom of God and to be reconciled with God, to be brought in to a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to be brought in by Jesus Christ. Paul wanted them to be saved. He had an overwhelming passion for his people and he would even desire to be an anathema to them for their sake. Someone who's loathed, someone who's, who's cursed by the church authority so that they may know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul would go to nothing and stop at nothing so that people would see Jesus in him. Wow. This begs the question. This begs the question, where are you, Christian? Where are you today, Christian? Have you considered the cost of discipleship? There's a book out by David Platt. It's called Radical, a really great book. I encourage you to read it. He says this, quote, Based on what we have heard from Jesus in the Gospels, we would have to agree that the cost of discipleship is great, but I wonder if the cost of non-discipleship is even greater, unquote. Wow. Non-discipleship. He goes on and says, that price is certainly too high for people who don't know Christ and who live in a world where Christians shrink back from self-denying faith and settle into a self-indulging faith. While Christians choose to spend their lives fulfilling the American dream instead of giving their lives for proclaiming the kingdom of God, literally billions in need of the gospel now remain in the dark. Where are you, Christian? Where 
are you today in your walk with Christ? Do you declare yourself a disciple? Do you declare yourself one who is following the Lord on that narrow road, on that narrow, narrow highway? You know, we mentioned Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, and one of the most quoted parts of his book deals with the distinction that Bonhoeffer makes what he calls cheap and costly grace. He calls one cheap grace, and he calls one costly grace. Let me put this out to you. Which grace are you following? Well, what is cheap grace? Well, in his words, cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Or even more clearly, if you hear the gospel preached as follow, of course you've sinned, but now everything is forgiving so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. The main defect of such a proclamation, he says, is that it contains no demand for discipleship. In contrast, he talks about costly grace. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What describes your take? Are you following cheap grace or are you following costly grace? Or maybe we're starting to redefine Christianity in America today. Maybe we're starting to redefine what it is even to be a Christian. Are we taking the Jesus of the Bible and now twisting him into a version of Jesus that we can be comfortable with? Someone who, you know, not going to ruffle my feathers and, you know, is going to say basically that I'm, I'm a nice guy. Ask me, I'll tell you, I'm a nice guy. Going back to the radical book again, David Platt says this. This is, listen to this. Quote, a nice middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who would not accept, expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that we can receive all our affection, so he can receive all our affection. A Jesus says it's okay to have minimal devotion time with him. After all, he doesn't want to infringe upon our comforts because he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants, to be, who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid all danger at all. Or a Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Is that your idea of Jesus? Is that your idea of who Jesus is? And if it is, what did we just do? We just took Jesus and made him into our image. And Scripture says we are being conformed into His image. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, conforming us into the image of Christ. We're not to return to favor and conform Jesus into us. So where are we Christians? Where are you Christians today as our nation becomes more and more liberalized and God is pushed more and more out of the picture? What are you going to do? Will you just mold into the crowd and be just one of the followers? Or will you stand up for righteousness along that narrow way? Will you look at the cost of discipleship and say, I'm willing to go bound to Jerusalem and die if necessary for the cross of Jesus Christ? In fact, 
What are people saying about your life right now? When they look at you, what are they saying about you? Do they say, hey, that person's a Christian. I can tell by the way they live their life. What are they saying? It's Christ in me that changes the world. It was Christ in Paul that changed the world. It was Christ in the 120 apostles, the disciples, that turned the world upside down. The Holy Spirit through them working. That's why we studied the book of Acts. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, folks. Christianity is not for the faint-hearted. It's not something you just do that's kind of, you know, popular or used to be popular back in the day. Or, you know, it's, not, it's not for the faint-hearted. Christianity is difficult. Christianity is tough. There's only one person to live the best Christian life, and that was Jesus Christ. Christianity is tough. But this is no time to check out. This is no time to bail out. This is time to buckle up and get true, to become a true discipleship and become a true follower of Jesus Christ. Where are you, Christian? This is a time when Christians need to stand up everywhere and be counted, or better yet, be seen. Let people look into your life and say, that person's a Christian. Let them know. They'll know you by the love you have for one another. They'll know you're of me, Jesus said. Look at our country. Lifestyles are changing. Families are disintegrating. What used to be the norm is now obsolete. It's obsolete. Young people. Our young people are fleeing the church in droves. Why? Why? Where are we? See, people are seeking the truth, and they will go to whoever's yelling the loudest or whoever they feel is giving them the truth, even if that truth happens to be a lie. If they can believe it, they will go there. This nation is facing some huge challenges. This nation is facing some really big challenges. I'm going to ask you, Christians, what are we going to do? Are we going to hide our heads in the sand? Plenty of it around here. Or are we going to stand up and live our lives according to what God says? According to what God says is in his word, which is the guide for our lives. Are we going to do that? Are we going to do that as disciples of Jesus Christ? You want to change social issues? Let God change your heart. Let God change your heart to those outside, the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the homosexuals. Let God change your heart. Because the only way that social issues are going to change is when they see the love of Christ in you. And that love is so attractive, so powerful, that they want it. That they want to change their lives. Let my life be the proof. The proof of your love. I love that song. Where are you today, Christian? Where are you today in this society that seems to be upside down? The society that seems to be going every which way. The society that has basically turned their back on God. This is nothing new. We studied the, the Truth Project. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln called us a nation that has forgotten God. Have we gone that far? Where are we, Christian? It's a question we all have to answer. It's a question that we have to ourselves answer as we leave this place today. Where are we? What do people see in our lives? Let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. You are a Thank you for joining us here today on A Sure Hope. In this series, Pastor Dave has been teaching through the book of Acts. This book follows the journeys of many disciples, but especially of the Apostle Paul. He took several missionary trips to tell others about Jesus, and he acquired many companions along the way. Wouldn't it be interesting to be a traveling missionary? 
he met many people who readily accepted the message he was bringing. In other cities, his life was threatened and he was pushed out as people didn't want to hear about the way. But being a Christian isn't meant to just be an easy road. As Paul's life displayed, you go into it knowing that there will be obstacles that you face. Is it worth it, you might ask? Of course it is. The prize that you'll be rewarded is far more precious than the things of this world. Staying true to Jesus, who gave up everything for you, is the best way you can live your life for Him. We're so glad we got to spend time with you today. A Sure Hope is a ministry out of Calvary Chapel, Cape May, in Cape May, New Jersey. If you're in the area, we'd love to see you on Sunday mornings. Check out AsureHopeRadio.com for service times and directions. Once again, that's AsureHopeRadio.com. And don't worry if you can't make it in person. On the website, you'll notice links to our live stream via Facebook and YouTube. All of these can be accessed through AsureHopeRadio.com. Don't forget to come back next time as Pastor Dave continues to go through the book of Acts again, right here on Assure Hope.